0: It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Sitka reported two new coronavirus cases Wednesday, according to data from the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. These new cases bring the city's seven-day case rate back up to nine, transitioning Sitka back into a high COVID alert. The city has been oscillating between a high and substantial COVID alert level for the past two weeks and will remain in high until less than nine positive cases are reported in a seven-day period. Statewide, Alaska continues to struggle with high case counts, reporting 442 new cases yesterday and six deaths this week. Since the onset of the pandemic, Sitka has reported a total of 1,222 cases, 24 hospitalizations and five deaths. The U.S. Forest Service is proposing a project to help restore young-growth forests in central southeast Alaska. It's seeking funding and approval to treat areas that have been logged in the Petersburg and Wrangell Ranger districts. If it's funded, fieldwork could start next year. KFSK's Angela Denning reports.
1: If you live in southeast Alaska, you've likely seen young-growth forests. They crop up after clear-cut logging. The trees are all the same age. Pole like with minimal low branches. Trees come in really thickly and they can fully occupy a site. Sheila Spores is a silviculturist with the U.S. Forest Service. Oftentimes, there's nothing growing in the understory. Uh, you know, it'll be very sparse and dark, and there, you know, no shrubs, no forbs, and no other little trees. Besides logging, Young growth forests can occur naturally if there is a disturbance like a major blowdown. Eventually, the forests evolve into old growth with a healthy ecosystem that's better for wildlife. But it takes a very, very long time, like a few hundred years. The U.S. Forest Service is proposing to help speed that process up by manually thinning stands on about 110,000 acres. The process allows them to encourage the growth of certain species of trees. You know, yellow cedar is a slow-growing species that is being impacted by yellow cedar decline. So we can go in and, and um, if we have two trees that are really good, solid trees, but you have to pick one, we'll pick the yellow cedar over the other one, for example. For the most part, the cut trees would be left on the forest floor to create a natural understory. Spore says they hope to get funding to continue the work for a decade. The cost will depend on how much is approved and for how long. Most money will come through a restoration trust fund, which gets funding from tariffs on imported timber and other wood products. The Forest Service started this type of young growth restoration in the 1970s. Encouraging old growth is not only better for wildlife habitat and watersheds, but also for future logging. The thinning is actually referred to by the Forest Service as pre-commercial thinning, because eventually it could be logged again. And that's a sticking point for some conservation groups, especially when some of the young growth is in roadless areas where development has been prohibited in the past. Alaska currently has a roadless exemption from the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has said it would seek to reinstate it.
2: Our main concern at SEAC is the inclusion of the inventoried roadless areas.
1: Meredith Trainer is the executive director of the Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. She says SEAC will be keeping an eye on how the project develops.
2: In general, I think that this is a good thing, that they're doing the thinning work and that they're doing sort of what is effectively restoration work in areas that have been previously logged. Um, We just like to see the roadless areas treated separately since they have different uh, management requirements and and sort of are just a different category of forest.
1: It's not certain who will do the work, which usually includes people walking through the forest with chainsaws. Spore says they sometimes partner with conservation groups or tribes, but mostly, they contract out to companies that specialize in it.
2: I have to say that this work is really extremely physical, and it's hard, and, you know, we don't often have large local workforce that want to do this kind of work.
1: The Forest Service is taking input this November, and they hope to make a decision by the end of the year. If funded, the field work could start next spring or summer. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning.
0: For many of us, checking the weather is a normal part of our daily routine, especially in Alaska's unpredictable climate. But where do those forecasts come from? In Elfin Cove, the answer is simple Mary Jo Lord wild Lord Wilde is a volunteer weather observer in Elfin Cove and a recipient of the highly prized Thomas Jefferson Award. KCAW's Tosh Kimmel recently spoke with her about the award and what's kept her eye on the weather for so long.
3: It was 1971 when Mary Jo Lord Wilde stopped off in the small community of Elfin Cove to visit a friend. She'd been living off the land in the isolated Brooks Range and had no plans of staying, let alone starting a career in volunteer weather observation. But 50 years later, as one of the few year-round residents in Elfin Cove, and the recipient of one of the Weather Service's most prestigious awards, Lord Wilde acknowledges that her life has been a little like the weather itself. Unpredictable.
2: It was a bit of a winding road to get there. I was a Northern California suburban girl, somebody who loved sunshine, but somewhere in me there was this vision of mountains and evergreens against the starry sky
3: lord Wilde found not only her mountains and starry sky in alaska's far reaches but also her calling when she took a job as a caretaker at the swanson general store
2: The new owners needed a caretaker and i was needed a place to stay there then so i was caretaking the old swanson store and uh doing the weather observations was part of that. Then when it sold that, again, the next people were not interested in the weather. So I uh, took it on then.
3: Every day at 2.45 p.m., Lord Wilde records Elfin Cove's temperature and precipitation and sends them off to the National Weather Service. It's been nearly half a century now, but according to Lord Wilde, it's never felt like a burden.
2: I'm grateful that 47 years of doing it has not been a chore. It's it's work I like. There's no resentment. I, don't, I like the work. I've been lucky there. It's, I still love getting up and going outdoors and taking a look and, and uh, feeling the breeze and seeing if the waters are swimming in front of the house and, and if, the, if that loon is still out there. It's great. I still love it.
3: Her work, which is volunteer, isn't about awards or even recognition. In fact, most of it's done in complete isolation. But as she puts it, receiving this award reminded her that she's part of a much larger community.
2: And the most satisfying thing about this award was, you know, I do all this work I have to tell you, my husband helps too. He backs me up when I'm not there or busy or something. The most satisfying thing about this Jefferson Award was, because I do all this work in isolation, right? I live across the bay from everybody else. I do this in isolation. But during the awards ceremony, the top people of the National Weather Service and regional directors spoke about how important this data is. It was really fun to feel tied to a bigger picture.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Award was created by the National Weather Service in 1959 as a way to honor the most outstanding and dedicated cooperative weather observers in the country. According to Kimberly Vaughan, the observing program leader and the woman who nominated Lord Wilde, it's about more than just her long years of service.
2: It's given to observers who not only just longevity, but are taking observations with almost no interrupted um, days of data. Their data is reliable and accurate. One of the things with Mary Jo is what's important to her is to be, to be doing something right. You know, I'm so excited because only five people a year are awarded the Thomas Jefferson award. You know, in in, in many ways it was a, a, a big honor to me to be able to submit the award and then, act, and then having her receive it was just absolutely, you know, it was it was thrilling to me.
3: Now that she's been recognized for her work, Lord Wilde is not planning to rest on her laurels. If it's anywhere near 2.45 p.m. in Alaska, she'll be recording weather data for Elfin Cove. Even though she only meant to stay for a visit, after nearly five decades, it has grown on her.
2: It's very... Beautiful and uh, satisfying in many ways. Not perfect, but it's my heart home now.
3: Reporting in Sitka, I'm Tosh Kimmel.
0: Taking a look at the community calendar. An exhibit of E.W. Merrill photos of Hlingit watercraft is on display at Sitka National Historical Park Visitor Center through the end of November. Hours are 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., Wednesdays through Sundays, and masks are required. The deadline to sign up to sponsor a wreath for the Elks Lodge and Wreaths Across America's program to put wreaths on headstones at Sitka National Cemetery is Friday, November 26th. Cost is $15 at Orion Sporting Goods or at the Elks. Wreath placement is December 18th. Mount Edgecombe Preschool is taking orders for its wreath and garland fundraiser sale at MtEdgcombPreschool.org or by calling 907 966 2675. Drive-thru pickup is 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, November 27th, outside Harrigan Centennial Hall. Sea Alaska Heritage Institute sponsors a lecture on Friday at noon on the civil rights icon Elizabeth Paradovich as part of a series on Southeast Alaska Native History in honor of Native American Heritage Month. All lectures will be streamed to the Sea Alaska Heritage YouTube channel. Sitka Fine Arts Camp's Young Performers Theater presents James and the Giant Peach, featuring elementary students at 7 p.m. Friday and Saturday, November 19th and 20th, and 2 p.m. Sunday, November 21st, in the Odes Theater. Tickets are at fineartscamp.org shows and at the door. Proof of vaccination for those 12 and older, and masking are required. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.